0: It's been just four days since Special Counsel Robert Mueller accused 13 Russians of a sophisticated disinformation campaign to interfere with the 2016 presidential campaign. And the Special Counsel announced new charges in the Russia investigation this morning. Mueller has charged a lawyer who worked for a prominent law firm with making false statements to FBI agents. Alex van was charged with lying about conversations related to his work on a report prepared by his law firm on the legitimacy of the criminal prosecution of a former Ukrainian prime minister. Joining me to help sort this out is Andrew Kent, a professor at Fordham Law School. Andrew, this involves allegations of lying about conversations with Rick Gates. The information and connections here get a little complicated. Can you describe them?
1: They do. Uh, you know, Rick Gates and and Paul Manafort uh, worked for quite a, quite a long time for uh, the government of Ukraine, uh, the you know the Kremlin-linked government of Ukraine. And as part of that work, um, you know, apparently tried to sort of make more palatable the government's uh, image in the West. And and uh, one of the reasons that folks in the West were quite critical is because of the jailing of uh, the previous president of, of Ukraine. I uh, uh, believe her name is pronounced Tomashko, uh Yulia Tomashko. Um And apparently a, a U.S. law firm, Scott Narbs, uh, where this person who's, uh, who's just criminally charged by Mueller worked, was commissioned to write a report essentially suggesting that what – Appeared to most people to be an entirely politically motivated, almost sham prosecution of her uh, was in fact perfectly legal under Ukrainian law, and um, it seems like as part of um, as part of investigating. Uh, Gates and Manafort, this lawyer was uh, approached by agents working for for Mueller and lied and destroyed documents, which are obviously two big no-no's in the eyes of the FBI and the Department of Justice.
0: So There's no indication that the charges have anything to do with the Trump campaign or the investigation into possible collusion, but let's talk about the timing. Um, This lawyer was charged on February 16th. Mueller's office released the information today. Is there something like a one-two punch to keep people off balance, or is it just the normal course?
1: It's Hard to say. I mean, the thing that's probably most significant about the timing uh, is uh, is the fact that it was a criminal information that was released, not a formal indictment. And usually uh, what that means is that the person who's being charged is in the process of finalizing a plea deal in some kind of cooperation agreement with the prosecutor, and so, um, you know, probably the you know the most interesting thing we can say about the sequence of events is this seems to be yet another person who's going to be working with the prosecutors against Paul Manafort, and that's quite significant because Gates has also been widely reported to be in a plea deal against Manafort, so if if Mueller has two cooperators against Manafort. There's a huge amount of pressure on Manafort to himself plead because, you know, the additional charges can be easily racked up against him, and Manafort is thought by many people to be sort of the key to understanding what Trump knew and intended about all of these things because he's such a important go-between between uh, you know the, the Russian uh, Russian Kremlin-affiliated people and the Trump campaign
0: that you you answered my next question as well which was uh, the Rick Gates plea which according to the Los Angeles Times could come any day so there have been let's turn to the the to friday and the special counsel's um, indictment of 13 russians there've been various theories about whether the indictment is just that and self-contained or if it might be the basis for future indictments of americans especially with the conspiracy theory it sets out which camp are you in?
1: I think probably the most cogent thing that I've read about this was uh, written by Bob Bauer, who is White House counsel to President Obama. He's also an election law expert. And he pointed out that um, that the way the indictment was framed suggests that Mueller may be interested in bringing in some Americans also in the future. And what his theory was, was that, you know, this federal election campaign law is quite clear that, uh, that non-U.S. citizens cannot give any things of value to, uh, to you know, participate in the, in the U.S. political process. And it would have been quite straightforward to charge federal uh, election campaign violations here. But instead, Mueller framed it differently. He framed it as a conspiracy to defraud the United States and its ability to uh, carry out uh, a, a free and fair election. And Bauer said that this is significant because it's legally uncertain whether U.S. citizens can be charged um, under the federal election campaign rules here in the same way that non-citizens clearly can. So it seems like by choosing the the conspiracy rather than the election theory, Mueller might be wanting to make it legally easier and and less controversial to loop in uh, American participants in this uh, conspiracy in the future.
0: Is there a reason that he would – these Russians are not going to be extradited. Is there a reason that he came out with this by itself? I mean, is is there a public relations sort of reason where he wants to say, hey, I am working on the Russia investigation as well as everything else?
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you're absolutely right that none of these people who were charged are, are likely to ever see a, a U.S. courtroom – so there have to be other reasons that, that Mueller had for for issuing this indictment, and um, you know there, you can think of a couple. One is that you know the president of the United States has said repeatedly that the idea that Russia interfered in the election uh, on his behalf is a hoax, a witch hunt, a made-up story, sour grapes by Democrats, etc. And um, you know, Mueller was charged with investi- investigating uh, whether there was Russian interference in the election, and he's given an answer. You know, he said yes, there was, and it and it was criminal. It violated a lot of our criminal laws. So it kind of puts to bed uh, the idea that this was just a you know made up story, fake news, which I, you know, I think is important uh, for the country. Uh, in in one way, in which it's important for the country is, is maybe now uh, the president is going to be able to move beyond. Um, his fake news rhetoric, and instead think about how the uh, you know, Russian future operations might be deterred by uh, by our government. You know, the intelligence chiefs were up on Capitol Hill in the last week, testifying unanimously that Russia is likely to uh, to be already trying to interfere with our 2018 midterm elections, and the president has so far shown really no interest in defending against that. So. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a quite significant indictment in a variety of ways. Um, you know, I just mentioned one, um, even though these people are not likely um, to be jailed at any time that you know, we can imagine.
0: Andrew, over the weekend, election officials from all 50 states received classified briefings on risk to their electoral systems, and that's according to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI joined the sessions. Do you have a sense that this can be done, protecting the election and people having confidence in it, without the president's intervention? We have about 30 seconds.
1: So, so protecting it, in fact, and, and people's confidence, I think, are two pretty different things. Um, you know, the United States election apparatus is extraordinarily decentralized and localized, and that you know, in a way, that's a good thing. It makes it, there's so many pieces that would have to be attacked in order to have a real. Effect. Andrew,
0: I, I'm I'm sorry, we'll have to pick this up some other time. That's Andrew Kant, professor at Fordham Law School. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court has redrawn the map of the state's 18 congressional districts, a map that will be used for the state's 2018 midterm elections. Election experts say the new map could help Democrats pick up seats. Today, President Donald Trump tweeted that he hopes Republicans challenge the new map, quote, all the way to the Supreme Court, if necessary. The U.S. Supreme Court has already rejected one challenge to the Pennsylvania court's ruling. Joining me is Michael Morley, a constitutional law professor at Barry University. Michael, tell us about the map and how it changed the prior GOP-drawn map.
2: Sure. Thank you very much for having me. The, the current map that the legislature had had adopted at the beginning of the decade Gave the Republicans an advantage, leading to a 13 to 5 split, with 13 uh, congressional districts being held by Republicans and five being held by Democrats. The map that the that the court adopted in connection with the political gerrymandering case can swing, and estimates vary on this but can swing as many as a total of 10 or 11 seats Democratic, switching control of Pennsylvania's congressional delegation from one party to the other. So if, if, if these maps do wind up being implemented, you can see a potentially dramatic shift in the political composition of, of the state's delegation.
0: Does this map favor Democrats unfairly?
2: Well, that's in part one of the things that the, that the parties are disputing one of the one of the concerns is that the court ordered that maps be drawn that a new map be drawn based on a particular criteria, such as uh, maintaining compact as compact districts as possible. The court didn't expressly order that maps be drawn in order to try to achieve some sort of proportional representation, and yet it appears that's one of the goals that this map has attempted to maximize. And so one question is, is the extent to which this, this map actually is consistent with the court's order. The, the bigger overarching objection that I would anticipate the Republicans would raise doesn't really stem so much from the state constitution or the court's order, but the U.S. Constitution, that, that that they have several arguments that as a matter of federal constitutional law, the state constitution doesn't limit the legislature's power in the first place, and it's the role of the legislature, not a court, to impose a map.
0: The National Republican Congressional Committee is filing a lawsuit in federal court to challenge the map tomorrow, it said. Now, Justice Samuel Alito refused to block the redistricting. So how far will Republican arguments get?
2: Well, there's at this point, there's really two main avenues for challenge. The first is to seek relief from the Supreme Court. Justice Alito denied a request for a stay, denied a request to put the Pennsylvania Supreme Court order on hold. But a a denial of a stay has no presidential weight. It doesn't imply anything about the merits of the case. So you can't read too much into that. Now that a new map has actually been ordered by the court, now that the Supreme Court can see what this new map is, how much it deviates from what the legislature did, it can see that the legislature hasn't reached an accommodation with the governor and the court Arguably, the case is much more ripe now for the Supreme Court to get involved. And so there's a, there, I think there's a substantial possibility the legislature could ask for another stay now that the situation has evolved and developed. And they can also file what's called a petition for certiorari, which is asking the court to hear the case on its merits, that even if the court won't issue an emergency stay, even if the court won't put things on hold immediately, it could still nevertheless agree to hear the case and have full briefing, full oral arguments. You know, petitions for certiorari, most of them wind up getting rejected. It's always a long shot, but this is certainly an important case. It is national ramifications. There is an important federal issue as to whether what the state Supreme Court did is permissible under the U.S. Constitution's elections clause. So, there's a, so that would be the, the, the door to the Supreme Court. A separate federal lawsuit Brought by the brought by the NRCC would face would face its own independent challenges. Uh, the The most salient thing is they would have to establish what's called standing. They would have to show that they have the right to uh, that they have the right to seek relief from the court. That they have the right to enforce the elections clause and the limits that it imposes in that case. And so that that's a that's a, a, a separate threshold barrier that an independent lawsuit would face.
0: Thank you so much. That's Michael Morley, a professor at Barry University. We'll learn more about the Republican challenge to this map when the Republican Congressional Committee files that lawsuit in federal court. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcast I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.